invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Psalm 25, Psalm 25. Psalms are a a different sort of genre, and uh, for maybe some of you, uh, you find psalms a little bit daunting. There's not a storyline that's easy to follow. There's not a plot. Uh, There's not uh, characters uh, in the way that we're uh, maybe can easily identify with and move into, but I just want to encourage you that uh, maybe it helps me to think of a psalm uh, like a watermelon, and you might be thinking, oh no, we're we're heading south in a hurry, but um, you know, when you look at a watermelon, it doesn't immediately look edible. Uh, you got to do a little, you just got to crack it open. And uh, if it's a good watermelon, right, it doesn't take a lot of effort and you just start it and it's ripe and it just breaks open and inside is all the juicy sweetness. Well, uh, um, a psalm is like that. When you maybe first come to a psalm, it's not immediately relevant. It's not, it's not maybe immediately accessible, but it doesn't take a lot of pressure, a lot of study, and it will fold open for us and we're going to find a lot of delicious gospel sweetness in Psalm 25 here this morning. So I encourage you to come to it with that expectation. Psalm 25, a psalm of David. Let's give our attention to God's word. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins." Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we need your Holy Spirit again. We are... Just in need of your word, we're in need of your confirmation that these things are true and that these things are for us. And so I pray you give us the ability to understand and the grace to believe that we would be strengthened and nurtured, nourished by your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 25, like uh, the Psalms in general, uh, as I said before, are not 
narratives, but what they are, are in, well, you could say it's a narrative of the soul. Uh, it's not a storyline in the way that we're used to thinking about a story, but what we have here this morning is a window into the soul of, of one of God's saints. And we, um, we find here a man living in stressful circumstances. I think you can often identify with that. Uh, we find a man who is deeply cognizant of his own sin. If you just open the soul to David, you'll see that's going on there. But we find a, a man in that context relying on, leaning on, taking hold of uh, what he believes to be true of God. And so it's a great uh, sort of instruction manual in that sense of, of uh, how we're to live in our context. Uh, the Psalms are a, really a great tonic for a sickness that ails the uh, American church, I think, in general. Uh, David Wells, I think, has uh, captured the illness when he says that the, the reality of God, the weight of God, rests lightly on the American church. Uh, that people believe in God, and they, uh, they'll promise you they believe those things truly and fervently, and yet the weight of those things don't really seem to make an impact, don't seem to impress themselves. So the weight of God's justice isn't sometimes enough to move us to fear Him and to repent quickly. Uh, the weight of His mercy isn't enough to uh, melt our worldly hearts and give us a love for Him. The weight of His grace isn't enough to set us free from our fear and our guilt and our shame and to fill us with the joy of salvation. And so we believe these things, but they rest lightly. Well, in the Psalms, you see, Psalms are written under the weight of God. These are not trite religious poems. Uh, this is a man, you see here in Psalm 25, a man who the, the reality of God has pressed itself down on David so that, that the desires of his heart are being molded by the things that he professes to believe, the things that he believes concerning God. And so this morning, I just encourage you to, to enter then in um, or, or let these words help you experience life in a real world with real trials and with dealing with real sin, but with a real God. And let the weight of the things of God impress themselves on your heart this morning. What uh, we find here in, in Psalm 25 is, uh, first of all, this, this incredibly authentic combination of faith and fear. Verses 1 and 2. David confesses his faith, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame, let not my enemies exalt over me. Uh, we don't know exactly the context there's, uh, that David is writing uh, this, this poem in, this psalm, but it apparently is happening later in his life as he confesses, uh, as he says, do not remember the sins of my youth. Uh, we know that David's later years, um, after his sin with Bathsheba, uh, was marked by turmoil in the kingdom and, and trouble in his family. They were not easy years. And so it's very possible that this is the context of the prayer. But there's this, this ring of authenticity in it as, as David professes both his faith and his fear. I think that's something that we can resonate with, we can relate to. Our faith is often mingled with fear. We believe Lord, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. I'm struggling. 
And in those times where uh, we're experiencing trial, stress, difficulty, heart sorrow, David just invites us to do what he does. Take it to the Lord in prayer. To you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Uh, The Psalms talk about this often, the, the lifting up of our eyes. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Lifting up of a, of a soul, it would be, uh, David is, um, the, common, the common way of worship in, 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 uh, in those days would be for a, for a man to stand with his hands upraised, his, his face lifted up, uh, as he offers him his whole being to God. This is, this is not a formulaic uh, prayer or way of praying. Um, the, the direction of David's thought and mind and heart is, is toward the Lord. Again, we can take a lot of uh, instruction from that, uh, that if we spent more time looking up and less time looking around, if we spent more time right, thinking of the Lord and analyzing uh, the character of God and, and, and the promises of God, rather than analyzing the, the trial, the difficulty, the pain, uh, life would look differently. Well, David, in his context of, of, of trial, lifts up his soul, Lord, to you. And there's a seriousness about this again. There's a devotion to God. It, uh, David is, is throwing himself on God. Oh my God, in you I trust. Incredibly personal. God is where I go. God is my refuge. God is my rock. God is my shield. God is my fortress. Lord, I'm coming to you because you're my God. And then he expresses and acknowledges his fear. Let me not be put to shame. This isn't just, uh, Lord, I don't want to be embarrassed. I mean, no one likes being embarrassed. But this isn't about being embarrassed. This is about being put to shame. This is about being um, an absolute failure and being exposed as a fraud. This is about uh, your, your whole life, in a sense, your reputation, what you had believed in, lived for, it just all comes collapsing in. Being put to shame is, is, is to be destroyed at, at the most fundamental level. And David is feeling this for two reasons. The, the reality of enemies and the reality of his personal sin. So several times he mentions his enemies. Verse 2, let not my enemies triumph over me. Verse 19, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Uh, David, as the king, knew that there were people who hated his guts. They, uh, there were people who, maybe because David had uh, made a judicial uh, decision that, that impacted them, maybe they were uh, political enemies who were trying to get, uh, take a, get advantage by putting David down. Um, they're just people who hate David. And they would love nothing more than to see David destroyed, David brought down. David, right, all these successes David had in his life, and they're sick of it, right? They just want to see David fall. And David says, they really hate me. See with with what violent hatred they hate me. But that would not be as big of a concern if it wasn't the fact that he was a sinner, See, uh, what, what enemies like this will try to do is they'll try to highlight, if they're trying to shame you, uh, they'll highlight your failures. They'll highlight your sin. And so David's enemies are reminders to David of his failures. 
And so three times, verses 7, 11, and 18. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. David's enemies made the reality of his own sin painfully real to him. That he had... He couldn't stand there in the face of their taunts and their accusations and say, I am without fault. He had to confess, he had to acknowledge that they had material to work with. Again, this is probably happening, this is probably being written later in David's life. And so when his enemies are looking for mud to use to smear David's name, they don't have to look very far. Uh, they can, they can uh, talk amongst themselves about his, his horrible sin with Bathsheba. How can this guy be king, could not even keep his hands off his best friend's wife, and, and then had the audacity to kill her husband, this faithful, godly soldier of Israel, in order to protect his own pathetic skin? Some king. And you see, their words would be true. They're not making up things. Now, this is an experience that maybe you've had right? Guilt and shame lie just under the surface so often of our lives, and it doesn't take a whole lot of investigating before we start to fear shame. We have enemies. Whether you know it or not, you have enemies. The, the, the devil's your enemy. The world's your enemy. Uh, your flesh is an enemy, but, but the devil in the world particularly are, would love nothing more than to see you humiliated, to see you shamed, to see you exposed as a fraud, and they have material to work with. You have been a hypocrite, and I have too. We've sinned in grievous ways. What if someone had the ability to just um, to truly review your life and, and go back maybe to your high school and college years, the sins of your youth, and wrote a little expose about the real truth about so-and-so? Anybody here want to volunteer for that? No? Why? Because we've sinned. But you see, the beauty of the gospel is that that's not the whole story. Uh, David's in that context, but David has something to go to and, and to appeal to. You see, David believes, understands that God has a purpose for enemies and for even past sins. Uh, our enemies and our sins are servants of God. To accomplish God's purposes. They, they give us a hunger for holiness. And that's, what, that's where David goes in his desire, verses 4 and 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you I wait all the day long. You see, as David experiences this fear of shame, the reality of enemies, the pain of past sins... What he, what he wants is not just relief. He's not saying, Lord, make them shut up. He, what he wants is holiness. He wants, he wants to walk in the, in the paths of God. He wants the truth of God. Lead me in your truth. Too often, when God rests lightly on a people, when they are in a time of trial... 
uh, we ask for the wrong things. We ask for relief from the trial, or we ask for the secret code that will break us free. Lord, I know you're doing something. Just show me what I need to do so I can get out of this circumstance. Well, that's not, it's not what David's praying for. And I think it's a misunderstanding of the purposes of God. It's not inappropriate to ask to be delivered from a trial. David says, three times I asked. Paul's, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I asked. And the Lord said no, because he had a, he had a bigger purpose. See, what David is after here is, is, is not primarily that the enemy stopped talking. He's after godliness. Lord, you are the God of my salvation. Lead me in your paths. Teach me your truth. I want to, I want to understand what you're like. I want to, I want to understand um, how that is to impact my life. I want to walk in the ways of God, and you're my teacher. Isaiah 30, verses 20, 21, with this great promise. Though the Lord give you the bread of adversity, that's an interesting phrase, the bread, the nourishment, of adversity, and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. That's what David wants. God, just teach me. He knows he's a sinner. He's seen the devastation of his sin. He hates his sin. But now his hunger is to please God. He wants to walk in God's ways, and he's willing to wait on God. He's going to commit him. He's committing himself to wait on the Lord. And that, and that waiting is not just a passive sitting by. It is, it is leaning forward with expectancy and confidence. God will answer this prayer. He's convinced of it. God will hear me. God will respond. He will be my teacher. He will grant my request. Now, where does he get that confidence? Well, we see David's hope and encouragement. First, it's basis, and then the blessings. The basis of his confidence is what he knows about God. Verses 6 and 7. Let's look at the things he highlights about God. Remember your mercy, O Lord. God's mercy is his compassion, his disposition to move towards a person in misery and to comfort and help and heal. Remember your mercy, O Lord. The Lord is full of mercy, tender mercies. Remember your steadfast love. The steadfast love of God is his commitment. So you have both the compassion of God, his character, and his commitment. The steadfast love of God is his committed love, his covenantal love. Romantic love, you see, responds to a person uh, according to how I feel. And how I feel is going to be dictated a lot by how the person acts. Covenanted love is dictated according to what I've promised. According to promises, according to my word. And that's what David's appealing. Psalm 119, he does the same thing. Let your steadfast love Come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. According to your promise. Verse 170, let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. 
He's not just talking about how God might feel toward him at that moment. The steadfast love of God is God's promise. It's God's word. Then it's a wonderful thing, you see, to be able to come to God with his own word, with his own promise. You said, you promised. I know I'm unworthy. I know that you are holy. You are righteous. You are just. I can think of a thousand reasons why you should abandon this, uh, this project. But, Lord, you said you never would. And that what you began, you would carry out to the end. And so David has the audacity to say, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Don't deal with me according to my sin. Don't deal with me according to my failure, my wickedness, my my transgression, which is rebellion against God. Don't deal with me that way. Well, how how do you ask a holy, holy, holy God who has promised to destroy what is evil, how do you ask him to overlook your sin? It's an incredibly bold thing to ask. Well, the reason you can ask it is because God's promised to do it. That this is the covenant. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's what God has promised. You see, David's appealing to the covenant steadfast love of God because the covenant steadfast love of God is precisely the love that promises to remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's the precise nature of covenanted love. And and David doesn't even stop there. Notice he's appealed to the mercy of God, the the compassion of God. He's appealed to the, the covenant promise of God. And now he appeals to the essential character of God. His encouragement is rooted in the goodness of God. That God is good. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. That's a, that is a fact, that's a truth that the devil will do everything in his power to talk you out of. Uh, the devil will do anything in his power to make you question the goodness of God. It's the first lie in the garden. The challenge is, is not the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the challenge is, can you, can you really trust the goodness, that, that God has your good in mind, the goodness of God? Well, David, just rest the whole thing. Good is the Lord, according to your goodness. Notice there's a wonderful gospel truth in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. That because God is good, precisely because he's good, and as a a manifestation of his good, he instructs sinners, not not the righteous people, not the people who've got it together, who figured it all out, who keep the rules, but sinners, transgressors. Calvin says this, we must observe this consequence, this therefore. God is good and upright, and he stretches forth his hands to sinners to bring them back again into the way. To attribute to God an uprightness which he exercises only towards the worthy is a cold view of his character and of little advantage to sinners. That's exactly true. 
If God is good to the worthy, well, not much help for you. Not much help for me. And yet Calvin says, yet men commonly believe that God is good in no other sense. How comes it to pass that scarcely one in a hundred applies to himself the mercy of God if it is not because men limit it to those who are worthy of it? So people will say, I, I believe God is good, I believe he's merciful, but, but not for me. They don't apply it to themselves, and maybe they don't even ask why, but sort of the, un, the underlying assumption is God is good to the worthy. Calvin again, on the contrary, it is here said that God gives proof of his uprightness when he shows to transgressors the way. Indeed, if the goodness of God did not penetrate even to hell, no man would ever become a partaker of it. No one's worthy. There is no one who is good. But God is good. And it is precisely the goodness of God that moves God to instruct sinners in the way. He leads, verse 9, the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord, all the paths of the Lord, not most of them, a good, a good majority of them, some of them, every path of the Lord is steadfast love and faithfulness. We need to take that to our bad days and our heartbreaking circumstances or painful trials. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. But then maybe you'll point out to me, yes, but pastor, notice the second line, to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Well, that's my problem. I haven't kept his covenant. I, I, I don't do very well keeping his testimonies. Well, verse 10 cannot be contradicting verse 8. Right? It can't be contradicting verse 8. So, in, in other words, the fact is that just because you sin doesn't exclude you from the promise of verse 10. It, that's the only people there are. And so the, the, the covenant keeping isn't um, a, a matter of, of keeping all the commands. It was never that. Otherwise, there would not have been a ceremonial system. Right? God made a way, even in the old covenant, for sinners to be in covenant. And a part of keeping covenant with God was then to, par to participate in the means of grace for sinners. To come with your sacrifices and come with your offerings and, and pray to the Lord and, and trust his goodness. So, so when, when you, you, you sense, well, I'm not a covenant keeper. Yes, you are. If you're a sinner who goes to God with your sin, if you're a sinner who participates in God's means of grace, the word and prayer and sacrament, you are a covenant keeper. You're, you're doing exactly what God has called you to do. To lean on his grace. To trust in his saving ways, saving means. And so you see, this promise is for you. As you do that. Now, if you abandon that, if you abandon your faith, if you abandon your concern for the things of God, if you abandon the means of grace that God has provided, well, God is still good. He's, his steadfast love and his faithfulness endure. 
If you're a child of his, you're going to receive the rod of discipline. Praise the name of the Lord. If you're not a child of his, God might very well just let you wander off. And his justice will be manifested and magnified in your loss, in your destruction, your condemnation. But see, verse 10 holds for sinners. Verse 10 holds for you and me as we we come with our sin to this covenant God. As we believe in his word and lean on his grace and participate in his his means of grace. And then the blessings, see that's, David delights in the blessings. What blessings then belong to those who do these things? Well, God will teach you his way, verse 9. He will instruct you in the way you should choose, verse 12. That doesn't mean a point-by-point description of what house you should buy, what girl you should marry, what job you should take. Uh, That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about he will instruct you in the way of life. He'll instruct you in the paths that bring, that bring fruit and blessing. God will show it to you and God will give you a heart to make you walk in it. Isn't that beautiful? He's not going to let you just go tripping off to your destruction. He will instruct you and keep you. Your soul shall abide in well-being, verse 13. That's a good word. See, that doesn't mean that you will never experience affliction. David is. Your body might be afflicted. Your soul will be downcast. But that's not your home address. It's not where you abide. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That's home address for a child of God. He will ever keep your soul. What would harm? He will control. In the home or by the way, he will keep thee day by day. And then here's this beautiful jewel of a promise. You will be a friend of God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. The friendship of the Lord. This does not mean that God is your buddy. He's vastly more than that. The friendship of the Lord, if some of you might have a translation that says the secrets of the Lord. You might have that in a footnote. Uh, the idea here is, is that God confides in some people. He makes known his secrets to some people. He makes known his purposes to some people. If you, if you think of a king or a president and he has a, his cabinet, and only if those people are allowed into the, the inner room, and those people hear the president's plans, his purposes, they're allowed in. They, they get to know the secrets. And God is saying, as, as, as he's running the, this world, as he is accomplishing his sovereign plans and purposes, God is letting you in on it. It's a friendship of communion and information in that sense. He's not leaving you in the dark. So the secrets of the Lord belong to those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now, how does this help practically? Because if you keep reading the psalm, you'll notice it doesn't seem to help immediately. Verse 16 through the end of the psalm, David goes right back to his concerns. Turn to me, gracious to me. I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins and remember my foes and how violently they hate me. So, there's a sense if you're reading the psalm, shouldn't we be in the good part now? Shouldn't there be um, just on to praises? 
And thank you, Lord. Problem solved, right? That's how the, the, the sitcoms work. Well, that's, this isn't a sitcom. This is real life. So what has David gained? He's still in the problem. The mess hasn't gone away. What's the point then of the psalm? How does this help us? Well, let me just close with this. Two things. The trials of the Christian life, the trials of, a, of one of God's children, is always in the context of God's goodness. David is firmly in the hands of a good God, which is precisely why he's talking to him and why he's crying out to him and why he's leaning on him. He's, the whole psalm is David dumping himself and his life and his anxieties on the Lord. Right? Cast all your anxiety on, on him because he cares for you. So we, so we learned that in the trial, God is going to be faithful. The paths of the Lord for us in the trial are still faithfulness and steadfast love. He's, God has made a covenant with us and he's not going to let us go. God's not dealing with us in anger. He's not casting you aside. He promises to lead you. One of the, the hard things about trials is how confusing they can be. What decision do I need to make here? What, what, what's the path to go? Well, God will lead you. He'll guide you. He'll show you what to say. He'll teach you how to pray. And God then, secondly, will show you his friendship. Which, which means, you see, that... <laughs> That not only in our trials do we have a faithful God, but, but the faithfulness of God has a name. The, the blessedness of believers has a name. His name is Jesus. And Jesus came to seal Psalm 25. He came to seal specifically right, Psalm 25, 14. Because he tells his disciples, John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. See, in Jesus, God is fulfilling covenant promise after covenant promise after covenant promise. In Jesus, um, we know we will not be put to shame. Well might my accuser roar of things that I have done, sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, and Jehovah knoweth none. I think as Watts maybe wrote, if sin be pardoned, I'm secure. Death hath no sting beside. The law gives sin its damning power, but Christ my ransom died. That's what we take to the accusations. That's what we take to the enemy. Go ahead. State your worst. It's worse than you know. And yet, Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And, and, and so we don't have to worry about shame. We can cast off that fear. But, but the friendship of God then is for us, which means, you see, that God has made known his purposes for you. God has let you in on the secret. The secret, Paul will say, being Jesus himself and God's plan to reconcile in Jesus all things. But specifically for you, God has let you in on what his plan is for you. And his plan is to sanctify you. His plan is to uh, one day present you without spot and with great joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. And everything in your life by the sovereign ordaining of God yields, moves, and accomplishes that purpose. God has let you in on a secret. And do not think that a small thing. There are billions of people in the world today. 
and billions who have no clue of the secrets of God and no concern for them. Plummer in his commentary says that it is, a, it is God's children who have a saving knowledge of the mystery of God and of Christ and a thousand things which to the world are enigmas and paradoxes, but to the believer it's glorious truth full of light and comfort. You see, the world, they look at the gospel and it's foolishness to them. And it's simply because God has not opened their eyes. So why did he open yours? Why are you able to see that, that you need a savior? Why are you able to see that uh, without a savior, without a satisfaction for your sin, you're lost? That there's no hope apart from Christ? And why is it that when you in, wander off in your foolishness and your sin, your rebellion and your transgression, what, who turns the lights on? Who brings the softened heart? Who brings the conviction? Who brings the sorrow? Who brings the hunger to do what is right and to be reconciled with God? Who gives you an interest in the things of God? It's a beautiful morning out there. You could be golfing. You could be fishing. You could be sitting on the beach. You could be doing a thousand things. What in the world are you doing here? Well, because, you see, God has done something. God has turned the lights on. God has let you in on his secret. And so, friends, let's walk in it. Let's lean on this Lord Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. No one has ever loved you the way Jesus has loved you. Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. Jesus has cared for you. Jesus has sealed the promises of Psalm 25 for you. Lay hold of them. Apply them to yourself. To him be the praise. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, you know us. You know our sorrows. You know our shame. You know our fear, our weakness. Lord, you know it all. But you've loved us with an everlasting love. Oh, Lord, I pray that in our minds and our hearts, this would be a great salvation. And that we would, Lord, cast ourselves with all of our weakness and failing upon Jesus and find him to be a friend for sinners. Lord, I I pray that we... Um, would have repentant hearts today and trusting hearts today and believing hearts today. And we would lift our soul, Lord, to you and cast ourselves upon you. Lord, if there be any here this morning who is just living in stubborn, blind rebellion and sin, Lord, be gracious to them. And Lord, for those who are stuck and caught in a sin, one of your children who just can't break free of a bitter spirit, a hard heart, a an addiction to lust or to money, to security, to comfort. Lord, set us free in your power according to your steadfast love. And Lord, as we wait on you for your deliverance, I pray, oh God, you would increase our faith, increase our joy, increase our confidence. And oh God, thank you that one day every prayer of your people will be answered when we stand in front of Jesus. May that day come soon. God's people said, amen.